0: This last week, um, we're in the process of moving, and we're downsizing. And so we are moving this week our things into a storage unit, and then at the end of next weekend, we're competing with the Brooks for uh, helpful hands to uh, move into a home that we're renting here in the Park Circle area. And so I went on Craigslist to look for the free stuff uh, where you often find moving boxes on the curbside, and they announced that because they're quite expensive, particularly wardrobe boxes. And while I was on uh, Craigslist looking there, I saw this advertisement. Uh, free. Archway, primed white, for a wedding or the renewal of vows. I thought, you know, Two Rivers could use that. We ought to pick that up. Um, an AB lounge sport, not sure what that is, a wicker corner shelf, old school wooden desk, an electric mower, a black and decker with a 25-inch cord, and then finally, a cremation urn. It has a blue background with doves. Now, this is great for permanent storage, it's only been used once by a little old nurse from Mount Pleasant. And that struck me as humorous. I thought, here's someone in their garage, like I'm doing right now, and they're spring cleaning and getting things off the shelf and out of the corner that perhaps they don't use or have need of. And they're like, wow, wow. I've got this cremation urn. I don't know if that little old nurse in Mount Pleasant has, was formerly in it or not. But it was only used once by a little old nurse in Mount Pleasant. I need to give this to somebody. I don't want it anymore. And so if you're establishing, you need to do, you're going to have a wedding and you need to mow the lawn. Nothing better on the occasion of a wedding to have a cremation urn sitting right there. That's what Paul is up against in the Galatian churches. In Turkey, in what is now Turkey, there are a number of churches, three, maybe four churches. They could be as large as a as hundred member or as small as 20 member churches. But these churches have been infiltrated by a group known as Judaizers. And in the Judaizers, they're both those who are Jewish Christians. And they're those that are Jewish, but they're not Christians. He calls them, in verse 4, false brothers secretly brought in. It's as if they're hired guns even that those who are Jewish Christians are willing to even avail themselves of folks that are just Jewish but not Christian in order to bring along with the gospel and its simplicity of Jesus alone to bring in the ceremonial laws of Judaism. Judaism. And these guys, they don't, they're do not they not simply in Galatia. They follow Paul around wherever he goes. They, they, they crop up in the synagogues when he preaches in the synagogues. They, they come to him in the streets and they create riots. And they follow him wherever he goes. But here in Galatia, he delivers this letter to all of the churches. And he says, we don't want a cremation urn. We don't want the the slavery and the bondage and, the, and the, the, the walking death of a cremation urn in our house. In my church and our churches, we want only the wedding arch. We want only to celebrate our union with Christ and that by grace alone. He sought us. He wooed us. He, he asked for our hand in a, in a relationship like in the marriage and now He loves us. He has loved us when we were not beautiful. He sought us out and He's put His love upon us. Let's celebrate that and rehearse that every day that you can keep your cremation on. This morning, we're going to look in these ten verses and I want you to see this. I want you to see that Paul is saying that my gospel, my gospel that I preach, which has come to be labeled as Paul's gospel. My gospel is identical to their gospel. That is, the apostles who are in Jerusalem, those remaining 11 disciples who are known as the influential ones. In verse, we see it down in verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, those who are even the pillars, you look in verse 9 James, Cephas, who is Peter. John, who seemed to be pillars, which I find that to be interesting, the word there for pillars doesn't mean like pillars of society. It means it's the same word that's used for the pillars that were in Solomon's temple. Huge, ornate, visible to all, designed by God. So he's saying, first, my gospel is not distorted. They're the ones who are doing the distorting. My gospel is the very same as the apostles gospel but though my message is the same my method is a bit different my ministry my ministry is not identical my ministry is independent in each of the churches in other words my gospel is identical but my ministry is independent and I want you to see three things this morning. First of all, I want you to see that in believing and in following and accepting and receiving the gospel, what can be called Paul's gospel, not because he wrote it, not because it's unique with him. In fact, he's saying it's not unique with him. Its origins, as we have seen, is pinned by God. I am an apostle simply as a messenger, one sent one called to preach this gospel it's god's gospel but it's my gospel by my emphasis i mean he is relentless all through this series all through six chapters of galatians he is relentless a dog with a bone he will not let go of this that's how it comes to be known as paul's gospel man that's got the mark of paul man pure gospel pure gospel but paul's gospel is unites us with all Christians. Secondly, Paul's gospel unites us with all cultures. No matter the race, no matter the socioeconomic differences. And then finally, Paul's gospel, when lived out, the fruit of his gospel, the evidence that the gospel has taken with me is that it unites me, it unites you. It unites two rivers. It unites us with all the poor. So let's look at the scriptures now. First of all, he says in verse one that after fourteen years he went back to Jerusalem. Now, if you're if you're following the travel log, we've already talked about how in chapter one he says this is what I was before I came to receive the gospel. Of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of my sins. I was in Jerusalem in environment persecuting Christians. And then in chapter one, he said, "This is how I became a Christian. Jesus came to me, I wasn't seeking him, knocked me off my horse, said, "You are standing against you are standing against the true way. You are persecuting me, the Lord, by persecuting my people and their way." The gospel. And then thirdly, he said, not only is this what I was, what I've become, what I, how I came to be a Christian, but now what I am now. I'm an apostle of this good news. And he built a case in chapter 1 to show that he didn't author it, but God authored it. And he's been away from Jerusalem for well over 14 years. At this point, he was in Jerusalem for 15 days, 14 years earlier, and then prior to that 15 days, he was in Arabia for three years. So it's, all, it's really easy to say that apart from 15 days, he's not been in Jerusalem, the holy city, where the apostles are, for 17 years. Stay with me. The reason this is important is because these Judaizers and these false brethren, these Pseudo-brothers. Brothers who are not brothers, as one person said. Brothers who are not brothers. Fakes. Fake Christians. They're accusing Paul. They're saying, Paul, you have been influenced by the apostles, but only by half. And he's saying, I didn't spend enough time to be there with them to be influenced by them, But also, there's something else going on here. In Jerusalem, they haven't really had an opportunity to sort out what the gospel looks like in the Gentile nations. Paul has. So he's saying, I've been away, so I'm not sure that we're on the same Page. I'm not sure in Jerusalem they're receiving word, but I'm not sure that they know what's going on. Uh, Acts 11. In Acts 11, beginning with verse 19, and I'm not going to read all of this, but in Acts 11, uh, beginning with verse 19, you can read that the church in Jerusalem began, that's the church, the church. They begin to receive word from Galatia and other places, particularly Antioch, that Gentiles were being saved. That Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, those that were formerly pagans, are now being saved. And Barnabas goes and he checks it out. And then it says in verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Paul is ministering. He's giving the counsel of God. To He's discipling for 14 years. But word is reached back to Jerusalem church of what's going on, and now he says, we need to go. We've been away. We need to give a testimony. We need to give evidence that this is of God. So he takes Barnabas, who is a Jew, and he is a Levitical Jew. He's of a special priestly tribe of Israel. So he takes Barnabas, a Jewish Christian man, and Titus who is a Gentile missionary convert out of these churches, uncircumcised, ceremonially unclean. And so he's got one on his left and one on his right. And so they take off and they go to Jerusalem. Now in verse 2, he said, I went up because of a revelation. Now, this is important because the word for... Revelation is the word apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. It's used most often for the second return of Christ where it will be not only visibly seen, but it will communicate in the vision its own interpretation. It's like an epiphany. It's like, oh wow, I see it and I understand. Paul said... I went because God told me. God revealed it to me. You have to admit that he would be fearful to go back to Jerusalem. Would they agree with him? Would they shut him down? Would they amend it? What about Titus? Would they circumcise him? Would they demand, we don't want that man in our congregation? Would Paul have to leave the denomination, so to speak? But God revealed it to him, and he obeyed. I uh, read a little cartoon comment this past week where a husband and wife were in, a, in marriage counseling. And she tells the counselor, she says, yeah, his sense of direction is all screwed up. He doesn't go where I tell him to go. Paul went wherever God told him to go. God revealed him, he says, now's the time to go to Jerusalem. In other words, God was saying, and he knew, He understood that it wasn't simply to go to Jerusalem because of a famine. You can read about that over in Acts. We read where in Acts 11, once again, verse 27. In those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up. And what he does is he foretold that there's a great famine And that it's particularly hard in Judea, and he wants them to send relief. In verse 30, so Barnabas and Saul go. But Paul, but God said, that's the occasion to go, but the reason is greater. Because Christianity, in essence, my pure gospel, is what is at stake. So Paul goes. And Paul says that he went and he set before these apostles, these disciples, those that are known as being the influencers of the early church, the influential ones. He said, I set before them the gospel that I'm telling the Gentiles. I told them everything that I preach, and I also told them that this is the gospel, that this is good news, and they're receiving it as good news. And I did so in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And what he's saying is, I didn't go in order to be corrected or amended. I didn't go to just say, is this right? He said, I went in order that my ministry would not die. My ministry would not be killed by these Judaizers. That my ministry would not be fruitless. As Tim Keller says, Nothing was threatening Paul's certainty, but something was threatening his fruitfulness. Oh, he was clear in the gospel. He wasn't running it by them for them to check it out. He was simply saying, I wanted unity with the church in order for this fruit to be maintained and to continue to grow and not be in vain. Can you imagine Could you imagine if these guys succeeded? Then you would have not one gospel, but you'd have Paul's gospel and their gospel, and then this church would have a different gospel, different good news, and all the while people being disturbed without lack of peace. In verse 3, Titus is a test case. So he's got Barnabas on one side, he's got Titus there, and this is like the, the cowboy movies where... You've got a gunslinger who once was a bad guy but now he's become a good guy and he's going to be the rescuer but it's at great odds. and it's, Everything's at stake and everything's at risk but he's riding into town and then he, he has one of the guys riding in with him and he says, you're going to be the most vulnerable. I want to guard you and I want to take care of you. But This is Titus. You're a test case. They could mob you. They could kill you. It'll be public. Everybody will know. And you can read about it in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where it says in Acts 15, chapter 1, I mean verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So right there in this meeting are these false brothers these pseudo-brothers. And they're saying, if you're going to be Christian, you must be Jewish. You can be Jewish and become a Christian, but if you become a Christian, you must become Jewish. And Paul said, no. And my test case is Titus. And I took Titus, and they did not force him to be circumcised. In other words, my gospel is not different from the apostles teaching the apostles did not force him to be circumcised so we were in unity in that it would be like someone saying I am a Christian but for want of opportunity or other reasons I have not been baptized yet can I worship with you this morning and we would say yes we want you to be baptized But baptism is not salvific. It's not a matter of salvation. It is a matter, after you're saved, of due obedience. But he's saying they welcomed Titus. They welcomed Titus and they didn't say your uncleanness means you're not saved. They're saying by grace you were saved and you can remain uncircumcised until God works on your heart, should he work on your heart in that way for you to obey Him in that. Sanctification or obedience follows salvation. Not before. Uh, Look down in verse 4. He says, because of false brothers, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that we might be brought into slavery. Mark Driscoll tells us in one of his sermons on How to become a legalist, he gives seven ways to become a legalist. Or I might retitle this sermon Seven Ways That You Can Go From Being a Free Daughter or Son in the Gospel to Becoming a Slave Again. Number one, make rules that are outside of the Bible. To be saved and to be forgiven, you must stop drinking, you must stop smoking. You must be a member of this church. You must wear certain clothes. You must clean your act up and do all of these things before you can be saved. Number two, push yourself to try to keep a bunch of rules. Be a person that really, really obsesses. Almost like a a narcissist about rules. Like every day you just think. I'm just obsessing about keeping rules. Number three, castigate yourself when you don't keep your rules. You know, beat yourself up. Number four, become proud when you do keep your rules. In fact, why don't you brag about it? Number five, appoint yourself as a judge over other people. Number six, get angry with people who break your rules or have different rules. Begin to... Create a wall of hostility. We're right, they're wrong. I hate them, and I know that they hate us. And then number seven, beat the losers. You're in competition with every church. And Paul's having none of it. So he says in verse five, I didn't yield for a minute, for a second. I did not give up any ground. I mean, what if they had said, "Okay, Paul. Okay, maybe it's a little much. I mean, these adult males to be circumcised. Ouch." So tell you what, let's let's start with just sacrifice an animal. Just have them sacrifice animals, or better yet, uh, the garments. You know, the locks of hair. The, uh, the, 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 the box on the head, the tassels on the gowns. Get them to dress up. Get them to dress right. I mean, these Gentiles, man, they got bangles and, and they got bracelets and they got piercing and, and get them to get rid of all that stuff and then, along with that, we will declare them to be forgiven. In other words, it's do this plus Jesus equals salvation. And Paul said, I'm not, uh-uh. Nothing. You mean Jesus alone? Yep, uh-uh, Jesus alone. Well, what about uh-uh, Jesus alone? He said, I didn't give up anything in verse 4. Why? So that the gospel might be preserved. Might be preserved. All right. I'm sure anybody doing uh, prayer has wondered why I have a bottle of beer up here. Um, don't worry, it's an empty bottle. I just I killed it, knocked it off before I came in here. No, no I didn't. I just kidding. Um, But, which, don't judge me. There's nothing wrong in doing that. Okay. Don't be a legalist. Okay. So, I'm not a beer brewer, but my work wife is a beer brewer. And uh, so, talking with Justin, my mind just uh, reels when he starts to talk about the process. But one thing that he is downright crazy about is how you have to be clean and, and, and have to, you have to clean the equipment and you have to be so careful that you don't introduce any germ that's not meant to be introduced. So that if you come in from working on the yard and you say, man, i got about a half hour to kill here, really three hours. So i got about three hours to kill here. I'm just going to brew, brew a batch of beer. And you don't wash your hands. You can contaminate with one touch the whole batch. And what you make is not beer. Oh, it'll ferment, and it'll perk, and it'll cook. But then, when you finally go to taste it, it is not beer. It's something totally other. And what Paul is saying, I want to preserve this gospel in all the churches. And if there is one accommodation, if there's one requirement, one little rule, one little command... Even in one little church that differs, if it's different than Jesus alone forgives us by grace alone, it contaminates the whole batch, the whole church. Because the gospel alone is what we all have in common. We're different. We're different. And this leads me into us being different cultures and how it unites us. Now in verse 6, he says that... uh, That he did go to these people who were influential. But he doesn't show disrespect when he says, listen, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. What he's saying is, look, you Judaizers making a real big deal about degrees. Reverend, doctor, most right, uh, you know, so-and-so. He says, degrees are okay. But he said, a degree doesn't change the gospel. Because it's not from man, it's from God. And then he says, when I met with them, these wise, learned men who had walked every day with Jesus, they didn't add anything to the mix. They didn't add anything to the gospel. That's so noteworthy, guys. That is so noteworthy to know that he didn't... He's saying, you know, just like a math course, they didn't add anything to it. So Jesus plus nothing equals my salvation only Jesus Jesus plus nothing do you have Jesus we're not we're not in danger i think of excluding Jesus as much as we're in danger of ruining the gospel and preserving something that's not the gospel by addition or subtraction or multiplication but these influential ones said Paul's gospel is equal to our gospel we're not touching it, even though we're in Jerusalem and we're learning about these Gentile practices. Man, I mean, some of these churches now are chandelier swingers. I mean, they are—they are like got tongues going out the, you know, in this church and it's breaking out in Corinth. And I mean, you've got wild singing going on, and in Jerusalem you probably have holy, holy. I mean, it's probably just the candle lighters. I mean. Some churches have kneelers and some churches don't even have pews because they're dancing the whole time. And they're saying, we're, it's different, but we're not adding anything or subtracting anything because the gospel is the, sh- is the same. And there's, there's a, a, a reconciliation that is starting to take place here where Paul can say in Colossians Later, in another letter to another church, in verse 16, Therefore, in chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, I don't have these verses, but they're good ones. In chapter 1, verse 19, For in him, and that is Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile. Hang on to that word in your mind. To himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his Christ. Reconciliation with Christ makes peace between God and man because of the cross and that alone. Verse 21, chapter 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, that's not just the Gentiles, that's all of us, unbelievers. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. What's the point? The word there for reconcile is that when we... Become a Christian through the gospel. And Paul says this elsewhere. The dividing wall of hostility, the wall between me and God is removed. But that wall between me and other cultures, be they Gentile, be they Jewish, be they man, be they woman, be they slave, be they free, be they any nation or any socioeconomic group, that wall is also removed between me and man. And the word reconcile means that it's not a new cosmic miracle, but it's a restoration of the way that it's always been designed to be. We're going to be like that in heaven. Not because we suddenly change, but because in heaven we realize completely that it's all grace and it's all Jesus. There's no hope for us to be reconciled with other cultures. There's no hope for us to be united with other cultures except for the gospel. Why? Because we've got our own stinking agendas. Because we've got things, little things, that we begin to to add or even subtract along with Jesus that is necessary for salvation. Do you add to the gospel? Think about it. Is there anything other than Jesus Christ you would tell someone is the means by which they would be saved? You know, some churches say that you've got to be baptized in their denomination or in their church in order to be saved. In other words, a person could be baptized in another church or another denomination, but that church tax on baptism. Maybe that church would say, listen, in this church... You say you're a Christian, but in this church, we do not imbibe out. Christians do not. Whenever you fill in that blank, you've added to the gospel. Now again, it requires for great wisdom to be able to separate out what is obedience for sanctification and what is necessary for salvation. But what is necessary for salvation is Jesus alone. And now once that's settled and my heart is drilled, that's drilled down into my heart, obedience, it flows. You know why? Because I don't have this morbid introspection. Am I doing the right things? God God didn't like me today because I didn't do the right things. You don't have that morbid introspection anymore. You're not so self-focused anymore. You're not so self-centered even about your sanctification anymore because you know that that's enslaving. Your identity is a freed son. And you're saying, don't put that burden on me. Obedience then begins to flow. It's much more organic than it is something that we do. And so Paul says that in verse 7 and then in verse 8 that his ministry is different from Peter's ministry. And we're going to look at this next week as we look at Peter's presentation of the gospel. But he's saying, though Peter, as a good Jewish man in Jerusalem, with his particular bearing and his particular gift set and his particular calling, he is called and set apart to minister to circumcised Jews. I, I'm called and I'm specifically set apart to minister to uncircumcised Gentiles. And he's saying both are valid. The church says that. The culture welcomes that. And he says it's not in opposition to one another. There's not two different gospels going on here. It's said that uh, George Whitfield, who was a great Reformed Anglican preacher and evangelist, and John Wesley, who was a great Arminian, Different theology, different doctoral emphasis, but also an evangelist, that they, though their theology and their doctrine was oppositional, that when they encountered one another, George Whitfield said, "If your heart, if your heart be as my heart, then give me your hand. If your heart, if your church, believes in the gospel of grace, then give me your hand. If your church believes that there is one unifying message of the gospel of grace is taught in all of the scripture, then give me your hand. Everything else is secondary. Everything else. And that's what happens here. That this, in verse 9, he says, they perceived the grace that was given to me And you can read about this in Acts 15 where James stood up. He's heard the argument of the Judaizers. He needs the law of Moses, the ceremonial law, to go along with this Jesus. And Paul's saying, this is what we're seeing. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're manifesting a change of heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only God can do that. Barnabas is saying it's so. James, who's something of the bishop, he's one of those pillars of the church, he basically stands up and he says, brothers, this is is true. This is of God. And so let's write a letter. And let's not put in that letter all these burdens of Mosaic law that we ourselves could never bear up under. They just crushed us. Let's just tell them that they are united with us as a church. We're united with them as a culture because of the gospel of grace. And they shook on it. Right hand of fellowship. We're in agreement before the Lord. And they wrote a letter in Acts 15. And that letter, Paul would have that letter to go with him everywhere. And Peter, ministering to circumcised Jews, he could share that letter. Paul, uncircumcised Jews, he could share that letter. And it united cultures and it united churches. And then finally... We see in verse 10 what looks to be like a throwaway remark, kind of oddball. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now, I got to looking at this this week, and a very helpful passage of Scripture is over in Acts 20. In fact, it's the last words or the last sermon that Paul would give. In verse 28, or excuse me, in verse 27 of chapter 20, now he's on the shore. He's getting ready to get on a boat. They're not going to see him again. And he's told them that. And in verse 27 he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Everything that God Teaches from Genesis to Revelation, everything that I knew, I always gave you the whole counsel. And then he says, as you go down, if you look down to verse thirty five, in all things, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way that we must help the weak. And that we remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself had said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So the Jewish churches were very, very poor. And the churches in uh, Galatia and elsewhere were very, very prosperous. And what Paul did way back in Acts 11 to take up an offering and to come and serve the churches, the Jewish churches, from a Gentile church, different culture, different church, different emphasis, but same gospel, what he did was not simply uh, financial gifts, but it actually was a spiritual gift. It connected them to them. They said, we're going to rejoice when you rejoice, we're going to mourn when you mourn. When you're poor, we're poor. What does that apart from the gospel? I've got a little tab each week in the passage of Scripture that I preach from. And this little tab says gospel on it. And so I I search very hard to see if I can isolate one verse or one word that most clearly portrays the gospel. This week, I put the tab on verse 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I would read verses uh, 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. In other words, the love that is demonstrated in your actions. To make sure that it's pure. Then I want to look for this test. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might also become rich. In other words, Paul is saying, you know why you remember the poor always? Because you always have in mind your own spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. You're always mindful that God does not show partiality. That God has shown the riches of Christ to every poor man, woman, and child. He has shown it to you. With that poverty in spirit, I'm now made generous. Material goods don't own me anymore. The, the the wealth that I can get from an affirming compliment. It's not like silver and gold anymore. I have the very love of God, the riches of Christ's grace enriching me. And therefore, I spend out of the overflow, both financially as well as spiritually. What does it look like? Think about this to someone you're in a relationship with, someone in your neighborhood, if you share with them your faith out of wealth and not your own spiritual poverty, ministering to someone who is spiritually impoverished, it can make you look self-righteous. Oh, yes, me and the Lord, we're like this. And look how the Lord has blessed me. And oh, yes, I never miss church and Sunday school and Bible study and community group and my daily quiet time. And I'll pray for you because God hears my prayer. That's all well and good. But what if you... What's more effective is to remember the poor is that when I approach a poor person, I don't approach them as if I'm superior. I approach them as if I'm either equal or even inferior myself. Think about sharing with a neighbor your own spiritual struggles, your own spiritual poverty, and it will resonate with them. Not simply because you make yourself vulnerable, but because you make yourself real. And Paul says the gospel, the gospel alone can unite me with the poor, or else I feel inferior or superior. But the gospel unites me because I understand poverty. I understand poverty, not simply financially, but of spirit. And I understand the wealth that I have now and that I can give to others. So, takeaways. The scripture is filled with takeaways. It's filled with application. But I would tell you this. If you have the gospel alone in your hands and you've not added anything else to it, And your hand can unite you with other churches. I believe in denominations. Every denomination that pleases the gospel of grace, we can give a hand to. It unites your hand with other cultures that we won't despise them or beg them to change to be like us. We'll welcome them and their diversity. And it'll also invite us to extend our hand to the poor to serve them, to bless them, even as we understand poverty now made rich by the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take this bread and this cup and that you would strengthen us and you would enrich us today. That you would take this communication, visual communication of the gospel, where you died in our place, and that's enough. We are now free but that you would take this bread and this cup and this visual demonstration of the gospel and you would strengthen us, that we might now go and we might serve you, not for your approval, but we might serve you as sons and daughters who are freed now from our sin and our past to serve you and to be known as your children who walk in all freedom and liberty. So, Father, we ask that you would set these things apart for your holy use As we do now pray in Christ's name, Amen.